Ryan Armstrong. There he is. Hey, man. Brian Armstrong is the co-founder and CEO of Coinbase, um, which is the largest exchange here in the United States. And uh, according to Bill Gurley, he's hoping for more regulation so he can pull up the ladder behind him. So let's start there. We're here for Bill Gurley's. Um, generally speaking, your reaction? I thought that was such an amazing talk. I was like cheering backstage when I heard that. I think we need more of that. I haven't seen somebody laid out that clearly in a while. He's totally right. I mean, regulatory capture is a huge drain on innovation. Um, you know, and the incentives are set up in kind of a bad way, right? If you take our company, for instance, um, you know, if you ask me just personally, I think there should be less regulation around this. I think it would create more innovation. Um, you have to, society would have to tolerate greater variance, right? There'd be, there'd be more scams, there'd be more highs, there'd be more lows. But the, the truth of the matter is a lot of times you have regulation and it ends up having the opposite of the intended effect. So we don't live in that world where people are going to say, well, let's just be hands off and do nothing. So when I go to DC, the Overton window of discussion is basically, we're going to do the regulation for you, or you can engage and have, have a, a say. And so of course, we're going to take the other side and say, OK, well, let's try to help craft that regulation. But if you ask me just personally as like a citizen, there should be less regulation, I think. What, what do you think the regulation should be as we kind of get through the boom bust cycle, all the scams and fraud that occurred? And you know, now it seems like um, the enforcement has gotten particularly intense. Mm -hmm. What would be a balance that would protect us from going, um, protect us going forward and, and eliminate the massive amount of grift, the massive amount of crime and stealing and fraud that happened in crypto that we all witnessed and is undisputable, but then also would allow us to innovate and not have it all go offshore? Because you said, listen, if you don't want us here, you opened, I think, uh, on some foreign islands, some entities. So you're ready to walk out of America, I, I understand, if they don't make no. great regulations. So tell well, us. we're not leaving America, that's for sure. I mean, this is our biggest market. You know, I'm an American. We started well, here. Well, if they delisted everything but Bitcoin and Ethereum, what would you do then? The thing is, that's just, I don't think that's in the realm of possibility okay. because that's not what the law says. Um, so we can start with what I think regulation could be or should be, and then let's talk about what the regulators are actually doing, because it's a little bit different. So, you know, the, the actual regulation that would allow this industry to be built here in a safe way, but also protect the innovation, it would do things that are actually kind of similar to the traditional financial services industry. So you would have some basic rules in place around, okay, you need to get these audits complete, you know, wash trading is illegal, let's make an actual process for somebody who wants to register a crypto security, and it could trade on a broker-dealer or, or these kinds of things. And so these are actually not rocket science, they're just kind of copying a lot of the best practices like AML, KYC, those kind of things from the traditional financial services industry, and centralized players in crypto should have to follow those. Now, if you're doing a decentralized thing, I don't think that's a financial service business, you're never taking possession of customer funds, like these decentralized protocols or self-custodial wallets, I think that should be treated more like the software industry, um, and the centralized players should be more regulated. Now, you can also do things like have a sandbox for innovation and say, okay, if you're a startup and you can't afford $20 million a year in legal bills, you know, you're under a certain amount, then you can operate on, in this sandbox, and there's other things other countries have done. What's actually happened is not quite that, although there are some good bills going through Congress. 
Um, unfortunately, we have a regulator, um, the chair of the SEC, who's kind of weaponized the agency for his own political purposes. Gary Gensler. Right, along with Elizabeth Warren, who they just don't want crypto to exist in the United States. Wait, and isn't their argument, well, just register like we all do when we sell securities? Um, and what's your best argument for why crypto shouldn't just do what we all do every day, which is register securities? I'm all for that, yeah. I mean, there should be a robust, healthy market to trade crypto securities in the US. Um, there is not currently a, a way to register. And so they've been sort of talking out of both sides of their mouth and then saying, hey, just come in and register. And then you see these exchanges come in that have never traded a single coin as like, you know, the ones that are propped up as like the, the ones that are following the rules. So they're actually, I think what their true intention or belief is behind the scenes, and I'm speculating a little bit here, is they just don't want it to exist. And so they're trying to cast a shadow over the whole industry to make it difficult. They're just sending subpoenas and Wells notices. Why don't they want it notices. to exist? Why? I believe it's because, um, and again, this is just me speculating a little bit. I think it's because they don't want to lose power. They, they think the government should run financial services. They have their hooks into the big banks. They can pressure the big banks to close accounts on, in, you know, if you have the wrong political opinion or you have the, you're in the wrong industry, you're in oil and gas or whatever the flavor of the day is. They want to be able to pressure companies because they can't get it done through Congress. They want to pressure it through the big banks. And crypto, in America, people should be free to have control of their own money, to use new technologies. It's fundamentally anti-American what they're doing. And I think next year in the elections, we need to make sure that all voters and people who are pro-innovation, pro-technology, uh, vote people out of office who are trying to curtail our freedoms no, around crypto. Are, well, hold on. But their, their counter-argument would be that your industry, um, which you're the largest player in, um, stole a bunch of money from consumers and perpetrated tens of billions at a minimum of crimes. Uh, and so they would not say they're doing it to control. They would say they're doing it. I'm not saying this is my opinion, but they said they would be doing it to protect customers. And you've had tons of fraud. You had issues inside your own company uh, with people pre-trading uh, coins before they were listed. Yeah, and so, well, that wasn't us. That was an employee who okay. got convicted. Yep. Former so employee. The, the space, you would agree, is rife with crime. So if they want to, you know, and that's their counter. So respond to their counter. What's true about what they say? Well, they're, they're absolutely correct that this industry has attracted some really bad people, right? I will admit that. Um, if you look at the beginnings of any new technology, you know, the internet, there was lots of scams. Um, even in traditional financial services, we have Bernie Madoff and Exxon periodically, right? So what you should do in a free society is if somebody commits fraud, absolutely, that's what the justice system should do, is go after them, create a deterrent, put them, put them in jail. You know, Sam Bankman-Fried should go to jail. It does not mean, it does not mean that the industry should be outlawed. And the, one of the really dangerous things that's happening is that, you know, the Constitution says that Congress creates the laws. What's happened, sort of, is that we've created these agencies, and because they can just send subpoenas to everybody or publish these guidance letters, you know, this is kind of the administrative state, if you will. Um, they are de facto creating laws. You know, other industries, like in the FDA, if the FDA puts out a guidance letter and you don't like it, what's, what are you going to do? It's a de facto law. And so there's an interesting constitutional argument around this of like, is the administrative state overreaching? And I think we've seen that in this example with the SEC. Well said. But yeah, and, but isn't one of the fundamental 
premises of, of uh, Bitcoin blockchain technology that we can wrestle away control from the government, and so you are de facto putting yourself in this kind of opposing position to the government, but you live in a country that the government has the laws and the ability to create new laws and enforce those laws upon you. And ultimately, crypto is going to be challenged by the fact that it is a challenge to centralized governments. Yeah, I mean, that's exactly right. Anytime you create a startup and you go up against some big incumbent, there's going to be a shift of power. And, you know, in the U.S., um, the government enjoys this monopoly on issuing the currency, right? They have, in, in the U.S., our banks are more privatized than, say, China or most other countries, but they're quasi-nationalized in, in the U.S. I mean, we talked about the, right, you know, the revolving door and all the kind of oversight, and, like, a bank cannot launch a new product without government approval, so you know, how, how really private market is it? I think, some, I think Bill Gurley showed that graph of like, there haven't been any new banks really created since Dodd-Frank. So it's a quasi-nationalized industry. Um, of course, some people are gonna be upset about losing the power of that, but um, in America, this, this is a free country and people, American citizens should be free to use any technology that they want. They should be free to use cryptocurrency. Um, and as long as you're not hurting somebody else, that should be protected as a freedom here. So what's the, what's the path, Brian? Because it seems like what you guys have had to do, you and others, basically use the courts to beat back the administrative state. Um, do you want to talk about that process? And you know, one example is this Bitcoin futures thing that just, I'm not even sure if it was resolved in the last few weeks or not. There was like a pretty important ruling. Do you want to just update people about that kind of stuff? Yeah, well, the, so that is one of the great things about America that makes me bullish on it, is that we do have these different branches of government that are such a great check and balance. And you're right, and the, court, the, ju the judicial branch has been kind of my favorite branch of government in the last few months. Um, and they've really kind of, the SEC has gone zero for three in the courts. The courts kind of keep upholding rule of law, which has been really great. So there's been a handful of cases. There was the Ripple one, there was the Terraform one, which agreed on this idea that the underlying crypto assets themselves were not securities. That's a very important fact, by the way, in our case with the SEC. And then um, just recently, there was this Grayscale uh, Trust uh, ETF. And, um, you know, the, the judge ruled that the SEC was arbitrary and capricious and unlawful in not approving their and application. This is what, what, you, what you mean when you say they're just de facto passing laws where they don't necessarily have the rights to do it. They're blocking free enterprise. They're blocking the ability for you guys to just do business. Yeah, and unless you're a big company like Coinbase, you don't have the legal, the budget, legal budget to kind of go to court and fight these things out. And, you know, I can tell you as a public company, there, I talked to a number of other people and they were like, you know, oh my gosh, you can't sue the SEC, like, or engage in litigation with them, um, that you're a public company, you have to settle, you have to settle, and, and like, I was sort of, the settlement option on the table was to essentially delist everything other than Bitcoin, oh. and so that would have been the end, your business. the end of the industry in the US. It was, yeah. it was an easy choice. Of course, if we think the law doesn't say that, we're gonna go to court. So, oh God, David, yeah. yeah um, so I want to ask you about uh, use cases, Brian. So I think, you know, we've had Bitcoin now for over a decade. I think it's been volatile, but I think proven very robust. No one's been able to double spend a Bitcoin. I think, like, for store of value, I think that use case is pretty much proven. Then we had the rise of Ethereum and this idea of a world computer. And there was a lot of talk for a while, especially, like, during the, like, very frothy sort of bubbly period, that there'd be all these use cases, you know, that were, would be built on the world computer. People might even be running social networks on them, stuff like that. Um, I think there's sort of been a correction from that. I mean, I think people now sort of realize there's certain 
there's a lot of applications where it just makes sense to use a centralized database. Blockchains wouldn't be efficient enough for that. I'm kind of wondering at what point, at, at this point, where do we stand in terms of use cases being proven out beyond the original Bitcoin store of value? Like, you know, what are the other big applications that have either been validated or that we should expect to be built on top of all this, this infrastructure? Yeah, so I'll run through a couple of them that are there already today, and then there's a couple on the horizon. So obviously trading was this first use case. Then we saw things like um, you know, stable coins have actually gotten quite a bit of adoption. There's about 150 billion or so locked up in stable coins, uh, useful for payments, you know, cross-border stuff, all kinds of things. Um, you know, DeFi obviously got to, I think it's probably at about 50 billion total value locked up in that, which is, not, is meaningful. I wouldn't say it's been mainstream by any stretch, but it's certainly material. Um, even NFTs got to a pretty, I think it came down like 90% plus, but it's still, it's in the tens of billions, okay? So those are things I'd say are, you know, they, they worked and, and I think they'll grow over time. I'll talk about what I think could unlock that next wave of growth too, but there's a couple others that are on the horizon. So decentralized identity, you know, ENS is probably the most popular one. There's only been about 3 million or so people have used ENS so far, but you see it show up a lot. A lot Explain of Explain what that is. Well, ENS is the Ethereum name system, so it's a, it's a decentralized identity, so you can control your own um, information online. It's not like using Google or Apple or a big So uh, my Twitter X profile, my Facebook profile, this is who I am, I can prove it. Yeah, and this is kind of the vision of Web3 is that if everybody has their decentralized identity, then you can now create a follower graph. You could make posts associated with that, like text, video, audio, to make a decentralized social network. You know, artists could have a direct relationship with their fans and have provenance. And if you're, you know, CNN and you want to publish an article, you, it can be cryptographically proven that it came from that account. It's not like a fake uh, to build GBT. On, uh... Sachs's question, why has crypto as an industry and the entrepreneurs there or done such a terrible job at making it easy for consumers to use the product? And yeah. I know that's something you've really spent a lot of time on making this easy, easier and trustworthy, but we're in the second decade here. And if you ask somebody to, you know, uh, do what you just said, create a decentralized identity, they would not even know where to start. So maybe you could talk about why that blocker exists. Yeah, so I do think there's a few things that can help unlock this next wave of adoption. UX is one of them. I mean, so it's, it starts with what we started with at the beginning. Pretty much every crypto startup is just getting a subpoena right now, and that's not fun, especially if you're two kids with a laptop and a dream, and like, you know, your parents are worried you're going to go to jail or something. So the, the regulatory apparatus has been quite bad, and I think that, that'll hopefully shift here in the next few years as we get you know, Congress to act, or a new SEC chair, or a CFTC, or someone. But put that aside. The, the other big blocker has been the scalability of the blockchains. So to do every transaction on chain is still, if you do it on layer one, it's like anywhere from five to $25. It takes anywhere from a few minutes to an hour to confirm. So that's like, that's not gonna work in this, to really build decentralized applications where every upvote or like or post could, you know, has to happen on chain. So we're getting now to layer two solutions, which is sort of like the internet going from dial-up to broadband. And Coinbase is trying to help that. You know, we launched our own layer two solution called Base recently. And it gets the cost and the speed down by about an order of magnitude. I, the, the, the metric I've been tracking internally and I kind of push our team on is we need every transaction to get under one cent in one second. If that, that feels like a threshold where we'd see an explosion of new use cases. Um, the last one is the UX, as you, as you put it. And today, it's, it's kind of remarkable, actually, how many people have used these things, like DeFi and NFTs, because 
the process to actually use it is crazy. It's like you, you buy the crypto on Coinbase, sometimes you'll move it to a Chrome extension, you have to connect your wallet into this thing, and like, you have to know what private keys are. And so if we can just make that where, you know, it's, it's sort of like a WeChat app or something where, you know, you're instantly connected in your wallet and your identity when you load it up in your browser or equivalent self-custodial wallet, and it's just one click and it's done. You know, that's what we need to get to as an industry. Scalability, UX, regulatory improvement, that's, that's it. A at the core, and this is where you and I, we, we, you've been on this week in startups, I think three times, and we've had deep discussions about this. The core of financial regulation in the United States is based on accredited investors, qualified purchasers, which are 6% yeah. of the country. And 94% of people in the country uh, are not allowed to participate in the wealth creation that everybody on this stage has benefited from, many people in the audience have benefited from, which is the formation of companies. It sounds crazy that we have not evolved this since the 1930s. Would this entire problem be solved if we could have an accreditation test, a sophistication test, where if you passed it, like a driver's license, you could get in the car and drive it knowing the responsibility it takes? We could simply give people a test and make them sophisticated investors. And then if you wanted to buy cryptocurrency or startups or real estate, you would be allowed to do it. Yeah, I know you're, you're hot on this idea, and I think the, the key part about what you said is it's not based on your net worth, it's based on the, it's passing the test. Your knowledge. I think that's a good idea. I, but by the way, I think accredited investor laws are sort of an example of what I was saying earlier about regulation that had an unintended effect where, you know, it was trying to protect people, but it actually made it illegal to get rich unless you're already rich. It was like this incredibly yes. ex exclusionary thing. Um, so anyway, a version of it that was not based on net worth I think could be good. I, you know, I'm not opposed to that. I think it's good An work. economics professor making $150,000 a year would not be able to participate in startups or crypto yeah. or whatever, whereas somebody who inherited a million dollars would. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's crazy to think that that law exists. I agree. One of the things that you need for a vibrant ecosystem um, is a lot of practical thinking sometimes. And just having been in around crypto since 2011, my observation, I just want your reaction is, too many people are caught up in the philosophy of being unplugged from the system and you know being unavailable to the man and all of this bullshit. And all it does is actually create shitty products, actually. Because people don't think about wanting to get to 500 million people. People like it when it's used by 5,000 people. Because mm. there's this weird culture of like, let me just build for myself and my you know, nine other friends who want to live off the grid. I really believe that crypto struggles with that. Like, there are a few people like you who are like, I'm just a practical, ambitious person who wants to take it to every single person. And I just want your reaction. Do you see that? Did you see it before? Is it changing? It's an interesting point. I mean, there are a lot of people that are the early, it's just like um, Crossing the Chasm or that book, right? You know, the early people who join these things, they really don't like the existing system. They're a little quirky. They have higher risk tolerance. And you do need to get into better, bigger concentric circles to cross the chasm, right? And I've, the internet was the same way. I mean, the early internet was weird, right? And, and people would compare that to New York Times or watching cable TV, and they'd be like, oh my gosh, this is so illegitimate, like these, these silly blog posts and stuff. And it, it slowly became, you know, bigger than the, the traditional thing. You, you guys are an example of that. So I think crypto will get there, but yes, it has to, there has to be a willingness to bring in the next round of people and the next one, and maybe they're into art, or maybe they're into just earning a living and paying their family overseas. They're not even into crypto itself for some libertarian paradise. Yeah, and I think exactly right. I think this is sort of what explains the massive complexity 
Only somebody who wants to minimize the market would create a nine-step process to be able to do something. Yeah, right. Because the average smart person would say that should be two steps. Yeah, that should be one click. Do that, but yeah. that, but doesn't, that, doesn't a lot of that complexity arise from the sort of the, the substrate, which is you're building on top of blockchains, and people want that decentralized, like trustless sort of layer? I mean, isn't that... I mean, I think, I think all these companies could be doing a much better job with the UI. I agree it's a problem, but does it arise from the limitations of the tech stack? Yeah, well, it's, you remember, it's just like um, people used to only write desktop software, like Microsoft Office, and then Google came along and they're like, hey, what if we could do everything in a browser? And, you know, Google Docs and Sheets was initially, like, way worse than a desktop software. It was always going to be slower because it was a new, you're building on a web stack and all this. And, you know, the tools got better and JavaScript engines got better. And, and, and I think that's the, the, you know, broadband happened. I think that's the era that crypto is going through. And it's our responsibility as the companies in the space to make this happen. No one's going to do it for us. We, you know, there's all these competing protocols. There's big, there's big egos. There's personalities. We've got to come together, make the tools simpler, integrate them, make them interoperable. Um, I, this is where I feel like I should have, I could have done so much more over the last five years, you know. And I, is, Same happened it, in hardware early on. What's that? Same happened in hardware early on. Computer. Yeah. And one of the big things I always try to do, is, I, I know we have these court cases going on and stuff like that, but I, I always try to make sure, and I tell the team this too, is like, we have great lawyers, you know, like 5% of our resources is going to go deal with that and make sure that's not an issue. 95% of us are here to build products. Let's never lose sight of that. Otherwise, we just become some lawsuit company. What is the product? I'm, I'm, I'm going to ask you a question before actually. Does your mom use Coinbase? Yeah. And but what she's she, my mom. I mean, that's but not, she's not your fair. mom. Okay, yeah. <laughs> but do you think if you weren't the founder and CEO, would your mom use it? So the demic like not out of love, but out of like necessity or need or interest. Yeah, I mean, we've had over 100 million people sign up globally. I mean, a lot of them are um, the biggest demographic is it skews younger, right? It's people in the 25 to 35 year old bracket. Initially, the users were often doing, they wanted to just own a piece of the future, and it was like some trading thing. Now about half our active customers do something other than trading, and it, and it runs the gamut. You know, they're, um, they're spending crypto with Coinbase Card, they're earning staking rewards, um, they're starting to engage in some of these, these dApps and, and doing payments with stable yeah. coins, but it's, it's a wide range where, of things. Where I'm going with this is, do you try to allocate resources inside your company to answer that use case, which is, all right, folks, we have this core fervent, obvious demo, and we can always grow with that demo and wait for that demo to be, you know, 50 years old, but that's going to take 30 years. Instead, we have to get that 50-year-old yeah. today. What is it that he or she actually wants or needs that they'll actually adopt? And then all of a sudden, 100 million users can become 500, can become 2 billion. Absolutely. I do think that is our responsibility, and that's what I'm pushing people internally on. And we need to drive the utility of crypto because... If it's just the speculative thing, for what? You know, I, I didn't get into this because of trading. I'm not really like a, tr a trader. Right. I got into it because I wanted there to be a more open and fair and free financial system for the world that reduced friction, allowed new businesses, capital formation, all these things to happen. You know, take out the middlemen who are just charging all these fees. So that's that's so what do I want you to have, get to. Are you tempted to then go outside the U.S.? Like because then when you say that. Yeah. I think most people would say, ah, oh, go to India and sit on top of UPI, go to Africa. Yeah. So how do you maintain that focus? Yeah, so we are definitely focused on international expansion. I just, I just wanted to make the point clear we're not giving up the home base. Um, but yeah, there's, there's a lot. We just launched in Canada um, last month. Um, you know, we're, we just launched an international exchange earlier this year. Uh, which I think will help us get to a bunch of a wide range of markets. Our self-custodial wallet could do better in emerging markets. Um, India is its own uh, challenge. I've, I've, we, we launched and it got shut down three days later, and we're going to try to re relaunch it again. So we, we need to get it there in emerging markets too. Brian, uh, while we have oh. a few minutes, um, 
can you share with us some of your work outside of Coinbase? You've been making investments in projects like Research Hub. You started New Limit. Maybe share with us if there's a common thread to some of the work you're doing outside of Coinbase. Does it connect back or is it entirely distinct? Yeah, well, I mean, the thing I get excited about is how do we accelerate progress in the world? And I think technology, innovation, some of the regulatory challenges, all the, th all the stuff you guys talk about. It's part of the reason why I love the pod is like, this is a unique voice in the world that is pro-builder, pro-crypto. It's like, we can, we can legit change. legit listens to the pod, by the way. Oh, well, I mean, you've yeah, been yeah. on, you're really the seventh bestie in terms of appearance. Frequency. Yeah, in terms of frequency. <laughs> yeah. You've been on twice, yeah. yeah. But anyway, I think that that voice is so missing in our society, and so I just love that you guys have taken the mantle on that. But um, yeah, so anyway, my investments have followed along with that. Research Hub is, is trying to make scientific research more like open source software and make that more efficient. Um, you know, New Limit is doing research into longevity with epigenetic programming. So I'm trying to use my own capital to further this and just accelerate progress in the world, get people to build more stuff. And before we wrap, I wanna, I wanna mention one thing. You know, everybody clapped when I mentioned um, the voting situation next year with crypto and how important that is. And uh, we, did, we created this website, standwithcrypto.org. Everybody should go check out. We're trying to get people to raise their hand and say that they wanna stand up in our democracy and uh, make, sh make sure that the right rules get put in place for crypto. So if people can check Which out- Which candidate is the most pro-crypto at this point? I mean, I know RFK seems to be, right? Yeah, yeah I mean, it's been interesting. Um, and you know, by the way, Coinbase is apolitical, but I, if anything in service of our mission around crypto is fair game. But a lot of the, the, the challenger presidential candidates have all been pretty pro-crypto. I mean, Vivek, um, I think, I think Tim Scott is good on this. I think DeSantis is good on this. I think RFK. So I'm hoping this becomes a bigger issue in the presidential race. And, you know, the Biden administration with, with Warren and Gensler has not been good for Americans on this dimension, and it's pushed a lot of tech jobs overseas. How much of a, a, a crater has Sam Bankman fraud put on the industry? <laughs> It's definitely not good. I mean, this, it reminds me a little bit of Mt. Gox when that happened back in the day. And um, luckily, people turn the page on this thing and they move on after about a year. And so I think we're coming up on that. Have you um, met, but, did you meet with him? And yeah. I know he wanted to do business with you. At what point did you realize this guy was a complete sociopathic fraud? You know, <laughs> I, I wish I could have told, told you that I knew in advance. Um, I had met him and spent time with him here and there periodically. You didn't know, right? Sorry? Didn't get a sense when you met him. No, I got the sense that he was very smart and that he was perhaps a bit reckless um, and, and young. And I, I, wondered, I wondered at times, like, where is he getting all this liquidity to go write these huge checks and everything? Yeah. I knew what our budget was, and I was like, I, didn't, I don't know where he was getting the money. But Customer accounts. Apparently. But, um, <laughs> Everyone I, I, said the same I, thing about Bernie Madoff, by the way. No one knew when they met him. No, like, no one meets the guy and says, I and think what that about, guy's a fraud. And what about CZ? There's like, there, every few months, there's something on Twitter that blows up about how Binance is just, there's something amiss. Yeah. And you know, I don't want to comment on that. I, I've met CZ a number of times too, and I think he's done a lot of good things for crypto, but I don't have any insight, inside information into what's going on in, inside their house. So we'll have to see. Brian, I, I just want to say, you know, it's very brave, uh, I think, the work you're doing, uh, it, both in terms of, and we talked about it on the pod, people can refer to the episode about, you know, the cancel culture and uh, hysteria, uh, you know, in people's Slack rooms, and I, you getting focused and being a mission-driven um, CEO that really wants to do good for people in the world who... You and Toby, the two most seminal business CEO essays of the last two years. Yeah, and I, you know, I think you turn the tide. Um, yeah. from, and, and made people really focused on what matters, which is building products that help humanity. And for that, we thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.